Hey, it's Greg Brady. Thanks for checking out the Toronto Today podcast. Really appreciate it. We got a lot to do today. Bruce Arthur from the Toronto Star will join us. Alan Carter and Sabrina Nanji as part of our Chatterbox, which airs live every morning at 735, except for Mondays because we're playing so much catch up. And we look at what Vladimir Zelensky said a month into Russia's war against Ukraine. It's all coming up on Toronto Today. Let me go here uh, and start here because... Vladimir Zelensky put out a video and he does not do this in English very often. It's hard to believe a week ago. Now it's like nine days ago that he addressed the House of Commons. And then he went and addressed uh, Congress and Senate in the United States. Yesterday, he was addressing the French Parliament. So he does sort of do a tour of duty, as it were. Uh, but this is some of his. I Here's I worry that he's asking for something that actually won't result in real change. I, there are asks that could result in real dramatic things. I think he made this video in English because he thought it's a month in. Um, maybe people are getting I, I know in my own peer group, we were talking about it last night. Uh, there were four of us out for, for dinner last night. And we talked about our our level of fatigue for Ukraine. And it's like everything else, right? Like it's it, heavy topics. I was thinking about this la, last night was just how uh, you'd love to just be lighter. Maybe it's like somebody that's writing a really heavy book, like a crime book or a real, a true life crime book. You know, I Keith Morrison, right from Dayline NBC, we're always like he's the guy Bill Hader does the impression of, and everyone's like, oh, oh yeah, and and he's he does those amazing uh, voice things, Canadian guy, right? And uh, and yet at the same time, maybe he puts his head on the, and it's just like this case is so heavy on me, and COVID wears on you, and Ukraine wears on you, and all this stuff. So we wondered about our collective bandwidth. And I thought maybe Zelensky makes this video to sort of rally the troops, as it were, rally all of us uh, to not stop paying attention. Yeah, it does all those things. I know what I think about Ukraine. I know what I'm watching. I don't feel I've wavered at all in what's this been going on. Twenty nine and a half days now. He labeled it as a month. It was basically the Wednesday night four weeks ago that we started talking about it. And we realized how significant it was and i think we also realized though there are reports russia's about to run out of supplies like they did not plan for this to be a um a ground war they didn't plan for this to be a, a an entrenched incursion um but i also know this it, it's it's barbaric um the russian soldiers are are butchers they are run by a rogue state that is criminal in nature that steals money from its own people and mistreats its own people. They're a terrible country uh, run by terrible people. And I feel bad for the people who uh, are, are afraid to show non-support. You saw all the people at that hockey stadium last week in St. Peter's uh, soccer stadium, really. Um, it looked like the stadium for a winter classic, right? Vladimir Putin walks out. There's a bunch of applause. He's wearing a parka. He talks. They cheer. Everybody's they play the anthem. It's it's a rally. It's and don't think that didn't look like a lot of the Trump rallies for three and a half, four years. But here's where I I don't know that I draw the line here. This this criminal country needed to be sanctioned. We want them. They're a mob. Putin's a mob boss gangster. There's no doubt about that. And he needs to be sent into oblivion. So let's sanction him to the moon and back. Okay, and I think there's been credible work done here. I worry about, you know, when I talk about performative action, are you saying something or are you doing something? Are you being practical? Are you out volunteering somewhere on a Saturday or are you just behind a keyboard? 
Are you just trying to show how great you look or are you doing something that's important? Okay. I think about this every day on Remembrance Day. And I think about visiting the veterans hospital in eighth grade. We had a field trip in eighth grade. We went to see some at that that time what would have been World War II veterans. I mean, it's the late eighties. So these these men would have been in their men mostly men. Some women would have been in their sixties, early seventies. Um Many of them aren't alive right now. And and I remember the guy crying when our bus left. A guy stood out on the porch of the Veterans Hospital with his, uh, and, and like waved at us and was crying just outside of London, Ontario. I couldn't find it today if you gave me a compass, but I remember the moment of him in tears. So I always think about that when it's like, what are you doing? How are you touching actual people? Well, I worry. I worry that it's more complicated here in the Western world right now. I don't know whether... You putting the Ukraine flag on your Twitter account or on the back of your car or going to a rally. You are going to a rally in Toronto and you're out there. You're out there. There's no doubt about it. But we are we have had some eye rolling moments. And so when Zelensky says, do this, stand with us, I it is a sincere attempt, I think, to lend a voice and put pressure on government. What I don't want to see is uh, is sort of the. The pushing away of people who are Russian, of canceling everything that is Russian. We're asking now NHL players and tennis players and and athletes to denounce Vladimir Putin. Is that the safest thing to do? Is that the safest thing to do when you've got relatives and friends back home? I'm not so sure. People do mean well. Generally speaking, you, me, all of us, we mean more good than harm. We mean well enough. And um, and and I, you know, I've seen sort of demonstrations of I want to do this for Ukraine. I want to I, do, I don't know. It's well intentioned and I'm never going to criticize good intentions. But are we putting enough practical pressure on governments that can make a difference here? Or are we just showing a lot of yellow and blue? And that could wear us. That could wear you out a little bit earlier than doing the actual ask for things and doing the actual heavy lifting. Like, are we pandering to Ukraine? I'm going to add, I'm going to add Ukraine's flag to my Twitter profile today. That'll show them. Okay. It's something, I guess it's not nothing, but Hey, are you willing to pay higher gas prices for a month in Europe? They're not, they're not cutting off that Russian supply of oil and gas right now. It makes me remember a little bit, a little bit of what it was like living in the States after nine 11. And I did, and everybody had to ever, this is before social media wonderful world that we lived in and there were a lot of people that looked and said i'm gonna i'm i'm an american patriot i'm gonna show you how what a patriot i am we're gonna we're gonna sing the national anthem louder than you are we're gonna we're gonna put a flag on our car there's gonna be flags on all the sports uniforms we are gonna show it and i think it connected people for a while and then it it was a little fascinating and then it depressed people for a little while Look, people want to belong to things. I understand that. I understand that. And doing something, again, always better than nothing. It always is. But um, I don't know how long the rally round the flag bump can sustain us. And I don't, I worry, is our media leaving Ukraine? Are they leaving? I'm so happy when I see people there. And I'm happy when I see the coverage as hard as it is to watch. And I found myself struggling more to watch it in the last few days than I was in the previous two weeks. And I don't know whether that's a good, if I'm struggling, how are most people handling it? Because we've got daily lives. We do have things to do. 
I'm being practical. I'm not being insensitive. We've got COVID. We've got education. We got kids to get back on track. We've got seniors to take care of. We've got, you know, things of our own to change and move off of. We got people we want to hear from and people we absolutely have to cut off in mid sentence and say, you've had your way for 24 months. I, you know, we've listened to your voice. Much of what you said has been wrong. We're going to stop. We're going to stop doing that. And I think we care a ton about this carnage in Ukraine. I think we care a ton, but how are we going to show it in practical means? And how are we going to move it in the other direction from just something that is performative? How do we do it? It's not that easy an answer uh, to come up with. So I think marches are good. I think showing solidarity is good. I think asking for the right coverage is good. I think, if anything, the leaders have been trailing behind the will of the people. I do think that. But there's a lot of things that just aren't that easy. I'm not for uh, you know a, a no-fly zone. I'm not for escalating this. But I'm more towards it than I was two weeks ago. I'm not there yet. But I've told people, anybody, talk to any military expert, this is going to go on for months and months and months. This is so much more complicated than the Balkans War, and that went for 19 months uh, in the middle of the 90s. I want to mention briefly here um, the story about Jerry Diaz, and I'm sure we'll get more time in on it a little later on in the show. Utterly bizarre. Um, this is going to have a lot of ripple effect. Diaz is uh, uh, the now former president of Unifor, that's Canada's largest private sector union, and he's alleged to have, ex- they seem to have a lot of uh, cold, hard evidence, alleged, though, for now, to have accepted 50 grand from a third-party supplier of COVID-19 rapid tests. Now, um, it's standard practice, it feels like, in this day and age, for someone to say, oh, well, I was starting to make bad decisions. I was struggling with this and with that. And all those may be true. I'm not sure that influences you knowing or not knowing uh, whether you should take a bribe or not, allegedly. He's on medical leave now. His doctor has given a detailed health report to that uh, Unifor internal investigator. And he says he has a debilitating sciatic nerve issue. Here's the quote. It's hard for me to say this, but my coping mechanism has been painkillers, sleeping pills, and alcohol. These factors have impaired my judgment in recent months, and I owe it to our our members to seek the treatment I need. He also might owe 50 grand back to somebody, but that's not his quote, allegedly. And we've also got a scenario where when you lead, holy Moses, the, the implications of not recognizing when your judgment is impaired documents that you shouldn't lead anymore. Clearly. Okay, he's he's had a lot of wins for this particular union. He's dedicated a lot to it. I've seen circumstances. Sting came to Oshawa. I saw Sting when he was doing his play downtown, the last ship, and he drove out to Oshawa, Sting with his band, and they did a thing where the generals play at the the GM arena there because of all the jobs that were going to be lost. And Sting and Jerry Diaz, they looked like there was a real kinship there. And Sting, it's Sting, okay, from the police, Rock and Roll Hall of Famer. And he's talking to Jerry Diaz like they had like a two-hour conversation on the phone last night. So I was really in awe of that. But this is a remarkably, remarkably troubling issue here. To take money, to to have rapid tests. And remember, people with Unifor lost their jobs because they wouldn't take the vaccine. I'm not saying that's right. I'm not saying that's wrong. I again, there were times there were times and places for vaccination mandates. And I'm sure in certain workplaces where Unifor staffs uh, those workplaces, it was really important from a public safety perspective. But this is going to be fascinating to see where this goes. 
And is it the first of, of more accusations coming? I don't know. Could he be the only union member on the planet to have accepted a bribe when it came to COVID tests, allegedly, or um, vaccines? Not sure about that either. But this is a very unprincipled accusation, and there's not a lot of empathy. Whether you do need painkiller addiction help, sleeping pill addiction help, alcohol addiction help, you still are accountable for your decisions. You still are at the end of the day. You can't get in a car crash while blowing up, you know, a .28 and then say, well, this alcohol addiction problem, I know, look at the mess you left. You got to make better decisions about that addiction. Uh, Shiva Siddiqui joins me now. You know, we could be playing this about Jerry Dias, but we're not. I mean, there's... <laughs> At some no, point, we, at some point, you will be able to uh, swing a, let's say, a baseball bat, not that other thing people use as an expression, and and we won't hit somebody saying, "I didn't know anything about that. That's not mine. Who who did it that? Wasn't I, well, it wasn't me. Well, we can be playing me. this about a lot of politicians. Wait, let's just say that. But today, we're talking about Paul Miller. Paul Miller is the MPP who was booted from the NDP um, a few days ago, last week. It's been, I think, it's been. It's five been about days. a week. About a week. Yes. Yep. Yep. Yes. And yesterday it came out that he was booted because somehow he he has been part of a, a Facebook hate group, an Islamophobic hate group that somehow he joined. Uh, and when this was discovered by the NDP, he was out. Now, this isn't his first offense. So apparently, uh, I believe in 2018, there was a human rights complaint about him from a staff member. Uh, and that was resolved, but it was regarding racist and homophobic remarks. That's all we know about that. And then he was behaving. He had given, been given a slap on the wrist and a warning since then. He was behaving until this was recently discovered that he's part of a, a Facebook group called Worldwide Coalition Against Islam. Now, Paul that doesn't Miller, That doesn't seem very neutral. <laughs> that seems like you're on one side of the fence about, well, a, about an entire religion of tens of millions of people, hundreds of millions of people. Well, his defense is, Greg... It wasn't me. It wasn't me. He has no idea. He's blaming a staff member and saying he never even goes on Facebook. What's Facebook? And you know how that is, right? You randomly go well, on I Facebook. I don't personally. I don't know and, what you're well, saying. I, yeah, uh, your, yeah. Staff, your staff adds you to random hate <laughs> Facebook hate groups all the time. That sure. happens to be every day. It's so annoying. I know. I know. So yeah. this is his defense. that He doesn't know what he's talking about. It's ridiculous. He had nothing to do with it. And a staff member added him to this group. So his quote in the Toronto Star is that the NDP fabricated the post in order to, quote, scare me off. So I quit. Yes. So I don't know which it is now because here's his quote. I've never posted anything on Twitter or Facebook. Frankly, I'm not that great at the Internet. Uh, my staff always did it. <laughs> but wait, I don't understand. Did the staff do the posts or did the NDP fabricate the posts? Which is it? Like once you've made two excuses for something, yes. you can't come home uh, late at night with uh, lipstick on your shirt and say, I was out bowling. <laughs> Wait a minute. And then two minutes later going, I was at the hockey game. There's no bowling at the hockey game. Which one was it? Exactly. You? Get your story straight already. There doesn't right? seem to be a straight story here. Get your ducks in order. So he's been an MPP for Hamilton East Stony Creek for 15 years. Uh, so this is an interesting story. I think he's fighting back, but there are, he says he doesn't even use Facebook. It's so uh, he doesn't know what they're talking about. What's happening? Where am I? But there, there's a digital footprint showing that he actually, and I mean, okay, he's 71. I get it, right? Like my, my parents, when they go on Facebook, they don't know what Facebook is capable of, what it shows, what it doesn't, when you were last online, what you've liked. So I don't think he realizes that people can see that you've been using Facebook. 
And that's not your staff because, you know, he's liking things, he's doing whatever. And I don't think he realizes that that's all visible. So this is sort of the second moment. This is a very different moment. But you remember out in my writing, and I, I told you this, and then we had um, we had Amber Bowen on, who's the liberal candidate out where I am in Ajax. I'm in a really weird riding because Rod Phillips is Rod Phillips riding, right? And he's not running again. And mm-hmm. he obviously... Once he got into his trouble with the fake being in Ajax thing when he was in St. Bart's. <laughs> that was the best. That's I, my, one of my favorite videos of all time. Which Merry one? Christmas. Buying buying maple syrup or sitting by the fireplace no, on the Christmas fireplace. Eve at 9 p.m.? Yes, yeah. the fireplace. That He's was like, awesome. oh, I, I was just finishing a book. Let me put Meanwhile, the book down and address, address people here. St. Bart's with a cocktail in his hand. Sounds good um, uh, to me right now. But but when I think about that, um, they also had the former mayor, Steve Parrish, running. And then they found he had advocated for a street to be named after a um, a, a person that had fought for the Germans in World War Two. And that person was then described as, well, that person was with Hitler and the Nazis. So why yes. was it so? And so they dumped Steve Parrish. They were good with him for three or four days. I think they felt heat about it. So, look, there's only so much a leader can control. But the one thing I would say is I think it's really interesting that this took six days. Like I do say, when the conservatives have kicked somebody out of their caucus, they say, Roman Baber, he's, you know, he, he's too out there. Randy Hillier, you're out. And here's why. Roman Baber, you're out. Here's why. This took a while. This took a while. It did, you know, and we had reached out to um, Andrea Horwath to join the show this morning, but unfortunately she's unavailable. Uh, I do believe she will be coming out this morning and speaking on this at a press conference, so it'll be interesting to hear what she has to say. It will. Alan Carter joining me, Sabrina Nanji joining me. Why are any of us still in Ontario right now? We've got the wherewithal, we've got the meat. Why aren't we traveling? Why are we we talking right now? place to I, stay you know you can get a tax credit for going out in the rain yes Come i on. keep hearing me i'm waiting to use that tax credit uh for it to be like double digit temperatures two days in a row and then i just might then i might cash in uh thank you from the uh government sabrina nanji from uh qp observer sabrina i should point out my wife did have to go cover the olympics in china for 25 days so it's a real ethical question would you go to china for 25 days if you knew you were getting a week in florida three weeks later some would some wouldn't it it depends on the person i suppose that sounds like a pretty fair trade-off. I don't me. know. I mean, <laughs> sun is pretty undeniable right now. Her her hotel in China was behind a 10-foot fence. So I can feel like how that would be a bit, little bit rattling uh, at times, I think, I feel. She deserves a beach in she Florida. Does. Yes. When When is daddy's playtime? I don't know, Alan. I, I, we'll figure it out on my own. I'll, I'll have my revenge in this life or the next at some point travel-wise. It's... <laughs> It's coming. Uh, Alan Carter hosts, uh, of course, the Alan Carter radio program later today. Sabrina Nanji, uh, brilliantly joining us from QPobserver.com. So this liberal NDP deal, this is one thing to me that people say, maybe the deal is good news for Doug Ford because he can campaign and say, do you want a liberal NDP alliance between Andrea Horvath and Stephen Del Duca? And they would probably create an actual coalition government if Doug Ford doesn't have a majority. That has been whispered about. Yeah, I I think Doug Ford is one of the big winners here. I think even at the federal level, um, you know, the conservatives, even though they're huffing and puffing about this uh, coalition, they they can kind of use this to unite their base, uh, especially, you know, after knifing another leader and sparking the third leadership race in about what seven years now. Mm -hmm. And so this can kind of, you know, create a a target, a boogeyman of a united left. And obviously, Doug Ford is going to play into that, too, in a provincial level. Like we're only a couple of weeks out now from the 
official start of the campaign in May. And of course, we're going to the polls on June 2nd. Um, but there's this interesting theory in Ontario. It's called the Underhill Balance Theory, where the province tends to uh, have in power the opposite of what we vote for federally. And, and that's um, holding true today. Like we've got the conservatives in power at the provincial level. And, uh, you know, we saw last September, Ontario voted overwhelmingly in favor of the liberals federally. So, mm-hmm. uh, you know, Doug Ford right now, he's he says that he's staying out of the federal conservative leadership race too. Uh, you know, he's, he says he's got his hands full uh, with his own re-election bid. And obviously that's probably more important to him than helping mm-hmm. out, uh, you know, his his counterparts at the federal level. Um, he's making these big, splashy, big spendy announcements. This week, we've got a lot of stuff on electric vehicle production, and he kind of needs the federal cash to help with a lot of his election platform goodies, like this ambitious yeah. transit plan they're proposing for the GTA is going to require some help from the feds. So, you know, I don't think Doug Ford wants to rock the boat too much at the federal level right now, but I think, you know, a Trudeau government in power until 2025 is, is going to work in Doug Ford's favor. Alan, could that theory work in this particular election? We know probably sometimes uh, Stephen Harper being the prime minister, people tended to vote for Dalton McGuinty and then Kathleen Wynne. It, it's worked the opposite way around. Uh, Jean Chrétien may have led to um, you know, Mike Harris and Ernie Eves. We, we do tend to do that in Ontario a fair bit, don't we? Yeah, it's 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 a standard. We we don't we don't like the same color here. <laughs> if it's, I mean, if it's if it's red in Ottawa, then it's blue here. And otherwise, you know, and flip it around each time. Uh, that's what Ontario does. That's what we don't we don't we don't. It, and and this this coalition. It's not a it's not a coalition. I I I don't know. I do it Schwarzenegger in my head every time I say it. Uh, <laughs> It's not a coalition. That's pretty good. That's not bad. I, I want to hear your Stallone and then your Jack Nicholson uh, before the end of the same. Keep it going. <laughs> uh, but it, it does. It, it, I think one of the main benefactors is going to be Doug Ford. It is going to help him on the campaign trail. He'll just say NDP liberal, same thing. It's, I mean, it's just, you know, it's orange or red. It's pretty much the same color. Um, and, and I think that that will help. So one of the main benefactors of, of this not a coalition coalition is Doug Ford. Yeah, I, I mean, 67 current seats, Alan, uh, and you need, you know, we're, we're talking you need 63 to hold a majority. He's obviously lost some bodies. I'm throwing a curveball at you right now. I didn't get a chance to listen to you yesterday, but what was your reaction to to Mark Saunders going into Kathleen Wynne's riding? Is that he mentioned a few weeks ago, he's like, we've got a good team. So he probably knows when, that was the day Christine Elliott said she wouldn't run and they've lost some, um, some prominent conservatives, Rod Phillips, Christine Elliott, a few other others as well that aren't running again is mark saunders a bit of a, a, a you know a life injection into that riding can he take that riding uh i think that riding will be in play i mean that riding is strongly uh behind kathleen Wynne. i, I, I think i don't think it's a slam dunk because mm-hmm. that has just been a liberal riding for so long and even though kathleen Wynne is not running again she's extremely popular and she is you know she endorses uh, you know, and then I can't remember who's replacing her, but if she's going door to door saying, this is the person you should vote for, and that's got a lot of pull. I don't think it's a slam dunk for Saunders. Obviously, he's got name recognition. That counts. That'll be a tight, tight race. Yeah, uh, I see a Stephanie Bowman in Don Valley West, who Kathleen right. Wynn is right. uh, is endorsing. She is um, she's a banker. That's all I know. She's not my banker. I would remember if that was... If I'd left money with her, I think I would remember. But I'd she's a banker, so she will replace uh, Kathleen Wynne. Is um the, the NDP factor here, Sabrina, with what they did yesterday um, with the MP 
MPP and the Facebook post. This is a really interesting conversation. Obviously, there was deemed to be an inclusion in what's described as an Islamophobic, an anti, excuse me, an Islamophobic Facebook club. So it looked obvious what the NDP needed to do here, but it took some time for a week. That's just sort of hanging in the ether. What did he do? What did he say? Um, when the conservatives have turfed somebody from caucus, they've made it pretty clear what the reason was. Did we need more transparency early on from Andrea Horvath in this process, in your estimation? Look, the way this whole debacle has unfolded over the past couple of days, it's just super bad optics for the NDP. Like, I think we can kind of all agree, you know, uh, uh, it's it's uh, valid, a valid reason mm-hmm. to maybe, you know, kick someone out of caucus, say you can't run under our banner. Um, political parties kind of operate as private entities and, and we don't really need an explanation about it. But, you know, this this raised way more questions than answers, uh, you know, being cagey on the, the real reasons, the specifics behind why Paul Miller, you know, a veteran MPP uh, was kicked out, you know, so close to the campaign uh, that that just gave oxygen to this uh, to this story and, you know, caused a, a big headache for the NDP. And now they've come out and said, you know, uh, this is the specific reason we, we've given Paul Miller the boot. Um, you know, Paul Miller uh, had, had suggested that he doesn't even really do much on his social media. It might have been a former staffer. He's lawyered up. This doesn't seem like it's going to end anytime soon, but it, it just horrible optics all around, uh, you know, raising more questions than answers. That's not something you ever really want to do. Uh, I, I think, you know, at a larger level, some some people might say we're talking about inside baseball, you know, mm-hmm. nomination contests, the candidate vetting process. Um, you know, but but in my view, this is important because it's arguably the gateway to our democracy, especially at the federal and provincial level where political parties uh, can make or break you. You know, they provide resources, recognition. It's not impossible for independents to get elected. It's just a lot more challenging. And so, you know, of course, Paul Miller says there's no love lost between him and Andrea Horvath. She didn't even speak to him about this. Uh, it seems like a big failure in terms of, you know, caucus management here. But but even from the public's perspective, uh, it's just a, a huge mess. Uh, and I don't think it's going to be over anytime soon. Yeah. Alan, this is this is politics in the, you know, 20 years into the 21st century, isn't it? In a way we saw the NDP. I know in my riding, I'm in Ajax where Rod Phillips won't run again. But the NDP tried to put forward Steve Parrish, who was the longtime mayor there. And they got uncomfortable with him endorsing that a street be named after a four former, you know, Nazi sea captain, for lack of a better word. So um, we see this all the time. We, look, Kevin Vuong was a real mess for the liberals leading right into last fall's federal election. This is just where we live now. Yeah, you know what? That's not what this story is about. This story is about personal grudge between Andrea Horvath and Paul Miller. In the past, they have sworn at each other, like Horvath, I think, has dropped a couple of F-bombs on him in the house, in the house. They, I they, even though they're riding adjacent, she cannot stand him. And I, I just, this whole thing, I mean, the statement they put out yesterday where they're like, oh, well, he got into some trouble a little while ago, and that was cleared up, it was fine. But I don't know, it's kind of a still stink. And then he's got this Facebook post, and he's like, I don't even, I, I don't even write my own Facebook posts. I think he's been shafted here. Yeah. I really do. I, I, I think this is, this is the NDP just saying, We don't want this guy. I I can't sit beside this guy anymore. I don't want to be this guy's riding mate anymore. He's out. Wait until the election. Wait until the election, Greg. Do you know what's going to happen? We're going to find some, and this happens every election with the NDP candidates. You know, there'll be some candidate in some rural riding that doesn't have a 
shot of winning at all. And some, uh, some, somebody will dig up something on them and they'll have to drop them in the middle of the election. And it won't be near as bad or it'll be worse, pardon me, than what Paul Miller has been accused of. This thing is just an internal battle and it's not what it appears on the surface. Well, and uh, he probably won't be the only one, will he? I mean, um, it, Doug Ford went through this in 2018, didn't he? With a few, ca- He went through with Andrew Lawton. I'll say it. He went through it with Andrew Lawton in London. Do I keep him? Do I not? This is cringeworthy stuff. What am I going to do here? So um, there's a lot. There's a vetting process that is that the party does privately, uh, Alan and Sabrina. And then there's what does the public think? What's the is the public digging through old Twitter posts or Facebook posts? Or it's not just our our literal garbage anymore. It's our online persona and personality that they're digging through. Give me your thought on that, uh, Sabrina, if if you can. Like it's 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 it. it, We're going to see a lot more of this. This is going to grow. It's not going to shrink in the next three months in terms of taking some of these candidates uh, and and going through their uh, their online laundry. Yeah, I mean, you know, I had a, a a little scoop earlier this week about another NDP wannabe candidate in Eglinton Lawrence, who, you know, uh, a, a teenager basically, you know, a young candidate uh, who's been involved in politics, and he said he's disqualified because a year ago he liked a tweet that referred to Premier Doug Ford as a as a murderer, and you know, I, I think uh, <sighs> of course it's up to political parties to make these decisions about who can run under their banner, but. A lot of folks were were upset about that, you know, saying this young person um, who, uh, you know, is is wanting to join the party, you know, uh, support the party, wasn't even given a chance to run for the opportunity to be the candidate. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, a lot of people are saying that's overkill and that, you know, this needs to be a more accountable and transparent process, at least, you know, give these uh, wannabe candidates a chance to explain if there's something questionable on social media. You know, Paul Miller kind of chalked this whole his whole debacle up to cancel culture. Uh, you know, I, I think, of course, Paul Miller, that goes a little bit deeper like that, like like Alan was saying, you know, uh, no love lost between him and Horvat there. But, uh, you know, when it comes to these nomination contests, like I said, uh, mm. they can get a little in the weeds, a little inside baseball. Uh, but but at the end of the day, like we need some accountability, some transparency, because this is, you know, how you get your foot in the door to to, to elected office. Also true. It's also true. Hey, Alan, we'll be listening today at, tw- at 12 noon. Thanks so much for the time. And Sabrina, obviously great to have you as usual. Be well. Thanks. Alan Carter, Sabrina Nanji, Chatterbox. I mentioned this. I'm out for dinner last night with my wife and other couple. Like you figure, what are you there? Like 90 minutes, 95 minutes, the whole meal takes. Uh, We had to get our kid to soccer practice. But the second, and I didn't do this, someone else brought up uh, Leah Thomas. And we started talking about the transgender NCAA swimmer who's eligible for the NCAA right now, but not yet for USA Swimming. She hasn't undergone enough years of hormone replacement therapy before being allowed to compete. But she won a medal. This is so, again, controversial. And Bruce Arthur from the Toronto Star joins me now. You and I aren't known for our tangents and you and I aren't known for our, right? So um, so it's amazing. I didn't bring it up. And then it was all we could do. We couldn't, it, no one was like, so um, how about that weather? Like everybody talks about this. And yet I texted you yesterday and I'm like, let's have a conversation about it. Because you also were in Tokyo where it came up twice, didn't it? There was a transgender weightlifter who was 43 mm-hmm. years old. And we also had um, the amazing uh, soccer player for our team um, be a part of a, of a gold medal winning team who's our, our first Canadian non-binary medal winner. So this yeah. is here. Like, these conversations are here to stay. So we better have them openly. Oh, yeah. So 
Quinn was uh, uh, the member of our, our soccer team, and she spoke. He, sorry, they spoke. Yeah, and, and that's that's my first mistake. I know. I, I do it too. I do it too. I do it too. But they spoke about how the sport gave them a chance to find somewhere to belong, right? And that is important in the trans uh, non-binary world. Like for a lot of people, this is something that they find scary because it's different. And I understand that. Um, And as with anything where you have someone you don't understand uh, who is different from you, try to look at it from their perspective. Like that's honestly, I think the best way to do this in women's sports. Are there trans athletes dominating the sports? The answer is no. Uh, at that swim week where Leah Thomas was, 27 new records were set. Leah Thomas did not set any of those records. Leah Thomas finished fifth and eighth in two of, uh, two of her races. Um, you, the problem you get with trans people in sports is it is, one, a scientifically complicated conversation, as you mentioned. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is not like you can just declare yourself a woman and compete there are there are chromosomal tests. There are there's there's stuff involving hormones. It it's a complicated thing, and it depends by sport, right? There's different testosterone levels that are helpful in different sports. The other is that it's become a culture or flashpoint by people who want to exploit the fact that people find it a little scary, and that's where I find this really discomforting because. Are a, lot, a lot of these conversations involving Leah Thomas are people who yell, we need fairness in women's sports and never care about women's sports for five seconds. No. Lives, <laughs> right. And, and, and so it's clearly not about women's sports. It's about ginning up an art, uh, an issue that people are interested in, as you talked about in your conversation with your wife and mm-hmm. the other couple, but also that people are scared of. Right. And this is probably a similar conversation when you were introducing, and it's not exactly analogous, but, African-Americans into sports, right? Like we should keep sports white was almost certainly a conversation that was had. So I just think you need to be really careful with these conversations and respectful. And to me, I go back to Spencer Cox and this is not a sports. Yeah. It's a bit of a sports thing. The governor of Utah, Republican governor of Utah. If you read his whole letter on vetoing a bill that banned trans kids from playing sports, there's like a ton of those all the way across the United States. He, one of the things he said is never has so much hate been directed at so, so few, right? These are kids who want, like at, at the youth level, these are kids who are trying to find their way in a world which is really hostile. Them. Trans kids commit suicide at an astonishing yeah. rate because the world isn't welcoming to them. Uh, and at elite sports levels, I don't think we're at a point where you need to say, like we're, Leah Thomas competing at, at, at a non-Olympic level and not dominating the meat. Why is all of a sudden this giant wave of, we need fairness in women's sports happening? Because it sure isn't about women's sports, it's about something else. Yeah, and it's tricky. I always always feel like, do I get a voice? Does Bruce Bruce Arthur get a voice? Do we listen to, does a Martina Navratilova, who's been a remarkable, I mean, again, like you could line her up against Billie Jean King and go, who are two bigger advocates for the LGBT community for decades now? But then I read uh, Rika uh, Yorgi's comment. She swam for Hungary in the Olympics, swam for Vatek, 
And she she was in the same race as Leah Thomas, and she wrote a letter objecting to Thomas's participation. So to your point also, like, let's take, you know, you were in the Olymp- you were at the Olympics in China, Canada, USA w- hockey. And people say, well, what if what if they take over? And I'm like, what if we wait until they do and then adjust conversations like, yeah, if eight spots on a 20 roster, 20, ro- 20 woman roster Canada team are taken up by trans athletes. We got a different conversation than just talking about Leah Thomas, because you're right. No, nope, you got to explain to people who who they are. And then they're like, oh, I got a hard opinion on trans athletes in sports. And you're like, well, you didn't before we brought this up. It's it's in, in a lot of ways right now, a manufactured panic, right? Like this is this this idea that there will be a takeover, basically, of, right? Yeah, these, these waves of of man like women is uh, taking over sports. It's not happening. It's not happening right now. It's not, and it certainly isn't happening at the youth sports level, right? And at the youth sports level, that's where I find this stuff insidious and hateful is more than anything. Like, that's the conversation that's being had. Is, is, and you look at some of the other laws that are being passed, like in Texas, for example, involving parents and trans kids, how if you try to, to help your trans kid in certain kind of mm-hmm. gender reassignment ways, you can be prosecuted and your kid can be taken away. That is pure evil. That is trying that like that's the same stuff that was used like with conversion therapy and all those things. Uh, again, if you start from a place of trying to understand what is it like to be a trans kid, it's got to be terrifying. Yeah. yeah. Like the, the, one of the luckiest trans kids in the world is Dwayne Wade's kid, um, because when when Dwayne Wade, I can't remember the name of the child right now. I know, but really supportive parents. Gab, this is yeah. somebody that he was Incredibly his first wife before Gabrielle right? Union, right? Was yeah. right. Okay. Yeah, and, and and Dwayne Wade, NBA superstar and big time celebrity, was in, he's incredibly supportive of that kid, um, but not every kid gets that, right? Because it is different and it is something we're not used to. And again, saying these kids can't play in youth sports serves no good purpose. It really doesn't, um, because at that point, like when you and then when you get back to, to genetics, by the way. Like this idea that they're genetically superior. Lance Armstrong had a hematocrit level, which is a level of of, of in, in a blood level, which allowed him to cram more EPO in his system before he dinged positive on the test than almost anybody else in cycling. That's a genetic advantage he was born with. Shaquille O'Neal was born, and he happened to be the biggest, most athletic, most agile human we have ever seen on Earth, as far as yeah, I know. Yeah. And and that, that he didn't do that in the gym. He didn't do that because he worked at it. He did that because he was born that way. And that's where you need to start these conversations a little bit. There's a lot of people who are jerks and say, oh, can I just identify myself? That's right. Ted Cruz did this yesterday, right? Can I identify myself as a, as a, as a, as a Middle Eastern man? Like, that's, that's high school bullying stuff. It, again, it's a complicated conversation. But trans people don't become trans people because they like it, right? Because it's societally fun. Like, it's, it's like kids yeah. coming out. Gay, gay kids coming out in the 80s or 70s or the 60s or the 50s. It wasn't fun to come out. It was terrifying. Yeah. So start from there, too, in these conversations. I want to talk about this longer right out of time. We'll talk soon again about uh, this and other issues. It's a great conversation, Bruce. I'm glad we had it. You bet, Brady. I want to welcome uh, back on the show. Um, gas will go up tonight, so let's find three cents. Let's find out why it's been back and forth, but it never hit the $2 a barrel, it never, or $2 a liter. It never hit the mark we were worried it would hit. It still might. 
everything feels so fluid right now. Uh, VJ Muraleader run joins us, uh, senior consultant at Energy Analytics firm Calibra. It's great to have you back on the air. I appreciate you coming on. So we, I heard the price for uh, oil per barrel is now back up pretty high again. The highest it's been in a couple weeks. It dropped last week. Are gas prices, VJ, following the line of the price, or is there a sort of a lagging effect on our gas prices right now? Uh, thanks for having me over. Good morning. morning. Uh, good morning to all the viewers. Yes, it will follow crude pricing. So as I explained last time, 65% of gasoline markets is explained by crude pricing. So if crude goes up within a day or two or few weeks, you'll see gas by gasoline price increase. But what you're noticing in the last few days, so this will give you a history. So the crude pricing increased because of Russian uh, invasion of Ukraine. And then it fell down because there's a scare of a COVID-19 outbreak in China. Mm-hmm. So that superseded supply shortage. But then they, they were news saying that, oh, it's just a, it spreads fast, but it's not detrimental. So then they focus back to supply. So the market has been uh, moving between supply and, and, and demand issues like a pendulum. So that's what's happening. So did we not get to a price where, uh, I, again, I, I know we didn't talk about it in our conversation a couple of weeks ago, but I did hear experts saying it's going to just go up, 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 up. And a lot of that stress over international markets and obviously Russia's supply. But it didn't get to where some observers said it would get to. So I don't want to say the worst is over, but that initial shock, right? We went through that after 9-11 or we went through that with the start of the Iraq war. What is global supply going to be like in the days and weeks to come? Do you feel like we're through the worst of it? That's a great question. So we haven't hit the worst of it because the only country that's sanctioning Russian oil is U.S. EU is not banned Russian crude mm-hmm. yet. They import close over a million barrels a day of Russian crude. Uh, so they haven't banned that yet. Now, what the key thing is the biggest consumer of crude is India and China, and they are taking Russian crude. So, yes, there is some impact in the market of Russian crude that's not been consumed. but <laughs> the bigger consumer is still consuming Russian crude. So you're not, it's not vanishing away from the market. You know what I mean? So until that happens, you will not see these $150, $200 crude pricing. That crude is still there in the market. There, there are buyers. Transaction is happening. So it's there. It's not, it, it, the pricing you're seeing over $100 is because there's a marginal issue over a million or two million barrels that's, that's gone out of the market because of U.S. not consuming Russian and there's some sanctions on other Russian barrels. So that is impacting. The fear is impacting pricing to over $100, if, you can, if I can reiterate. There's another issue that happened this week. There's a there's oil pipeline that goes from Russia all the way to uh, the Black Sea. That was shut down. A million barrels a day of pipeline was shut down. So basically there's a Temporary shortfall of supply that's given spurt to oil pricing. Well, Vijay, I'm reading from a, a German uh, article in, in Business Review. It's translated into English, so I'll read you what it says. But I think I think you crystallize exactly what the problem is. It, it reads, if Germany is cut off from Russian energy imports, it'll need to compensate either through alternative supply sources, fuel shifting and economic reallocation or demand reduction, as in demand reduction for corporations and citizens. We've already seen the German chancellor say, if we boycott Russian energy, we lose jobs. And I think the same would be true in North America and other Western European countries. So it's great to say, hey, let's cut off oil, oil and gas until jobs are lost and you and me pay more at the pump for what, what we get. So North America is quite independent from Europe. Europe has no, uh, uh, I would say, except for Norway and few countries, there is production of uh, crude. 
But North America is very different uh, beast here. We have mm-hmm. a lot of domestic production capabilities. So if prices stay high, shale will respond. If prices stay high, Canada will respond. So this high pricing you're seeing might last for a few months, but it may not last forever. So there are two things here. Sorry to interrupt. And the two things here. One is this high pricing and how it impacts demand and how demand responds. There's a second round effect. The second thing is uh, how does production respond? So we, we talk about production as a lag effect. It doesn't come out like a light switch. It takes time because investment has to be made, so on and so forth. So investment can happen in shale, and they can respond in six months. Uh, so that can happen. I'm not ruling out that. Now, the, second, the first point I talked about, if prices stay high for longer at this level, what we call is demand destruction comes into play. What do you mean by that? If it stays above 180 cents a liter to 200 cents a liter, people start reevaluating what they need to spend money on. Do I need to drive here? Do I not need to drive here? They have to make some tough choices, and yeah. that creates a demand destruction of gasoline. Now, what happens when that happens? So demand falls. So pricing and supply will have to respond to that. You know what I mean? So the second on effect, which will create prices to fall down if demand destruction comes into place. Vijay uh, Murali, Duran, our guest on Toronto today on 640 Toronto. I got one more for you. I don't read much into this poll whatsoever. Uh, 54% of Canadians cutting back on driving amid high gas prices. Well, there's two things there. One, we we always, we will we'll tell people that we are because we want to, we complain about our cable bill, our cell phone bill, our, our what we pay at the gas pump. We don't tend to complain about a lot of other infrastructure we spend. We, it could be an airline ticket. It could be McDonald's. But we love to complain about gas prices. We always have. So I don't know that that 54% is about gas prices. It's we all drive less during the pandemic. We, we clearly do. So if we're not driving less, I'm not sure it's all because of high gas prices. Yeah. So the, the, the problem is the problem is just not gasoline pricing. It feeds into other items that you purchase day to day, for example, fruits and vegetables. So mm-hmm. that's what the Bank of Canada keeps an eye on. Does this high energy pricing feeds into every commodity that we use day to day? For example, you might ask for an employer to give you a raise because you it takes long it takes it's more expensive for you to get to work. Just as an example, right? Over time, so people need wages and salary increases to compensate for cost of living. Now that will feed into the inflation, and that is a bigger problem. That's what I meant to say. Yeah, that's right. That that's exactly it. VJ, it's great having you on. Uh, thanks for clarifying some of where we've been and, and where we're going in the next couple of weeks with what we pay at the pump. Appreciate the time. Hey, have a good day. A couple issues I want to focus on uh, with the city of Toronto and very happy to welcome on uh, City Hall reporter Jennifer Pagliaro, our guest. Uh, thanks for getting up early for us. I always appreciate you doing that and, and making the time for us. I don't, I don't know how you rate yourself as a morning person. So maybe you're like, I was up two hours ago. I don't know. Good morning. Very low. I woke up for this, but happy to be here. Okay, so about a three out of ten for for morning, uh, yeah, morning, uh, morning uh, tolerance of uh, of inanity. Let's put it that way. Um, what did you make? What did you make of the report? Um, I think there's two ways to go with the blizzard. One is okay. A lot went wrong that day, but I think there's a lot of people saying we need we've got a city here where we need to spend money here and build up infrastructure here and we got a lot of recovering to do post COVID. So should we be in a constant state of alarm for a storm that only happens once every twenty three years? Or maybe the balance, Jennifer, is somewhere in the middle. 
Yeah, it's interesting because, you know, at the end of the day, we're talking about weather, right? And we all look at the forecast uh, probably daily and know that sometimes it tells us it's going to rain and, and, and it hails and you're not always 100% prepared for that. That's true of the city. They get pretty detailed weather forecasts. They try to prepare as best they can. One of the things that was interesting to me reading this report is that there really is nothing in the city's uh, official preparation, the standards that they set out for winter storms that account at all for a storm, uh, the size and severity that we saw in January. I think it's prudent to adjust those categories. That's one of the things that they've suggested to at least acknowledge that these types of storms uh, can and likely will happen more frequently. And that's that's one of the things that city staff have recommended moving forward. Now, you've raised a good point about, you know, will that really uh, help us be prepared in the event of a storm like this? You mm-hmm. know, staff sort of said two things. They, they talked about ways in which they could acknowledge storms like this, uh, create different plans on how to, you know, uh, move resources around the city when a storm like this happens. But they also kept saying to me, you know, every storm is unique. Every storm is unique. And so... I think it will really matter the details. Um, City staff want to create this extreme winter weather plan and the details of that, you know, whether there's any actual uh, dollars and resources we can put towards that, that will make sense, that will be efficient. Um, I think some of those details we haven't seen yet and that those will be really important. Jennifer Pagliaro from the Toronto Star, guest on Toronto Today, talking about the uh, report that uh, the city got, and a lot of it was based on public feedback uh, as well regarding the January 17th snowstorm to remind people 55 centimeters of snow that day. And I think that's a factor, too, is thinking you got to you got to parse this out and, and look at it in the day of there's very little the city can do. It's five centimeters an hour. Um, there's 500 TT bus, TTC buses that needed to be dug out. We're closing the DVP. We're closing the garden. Just unprecedented stuff. There is that. But then there's residents saying it's been nine days now and I still can't get down <laughs> my road. It's my sidewalk is, is not safe to walk down. And some and some people were obviously complaining about that two weeks. So there's the day of where sometimes you just got to take the L with Mother Nature. And then there's, well, can we do better a week later? Yeah, totally. Like, there is a lot of details in the report about, like, what specifically happened. I think that's important, transparency for the public. Obviously, a lot of people were snowed in and and stuck, and especially people with mobility issues, there were a lot of um, concerning situations. You know, me, for example, I'm stuck inside, but I'm totally fine. Other folks um, really needed to get out. And Mm -hmm. so one of the things that happened is that the snow fell so quickly. So if we had seen the same amount of snow, but it fell over a week, the city and all the plows would have likely been able to keep up with that level of snowfall. It's the fact that it all kind of dumped uh, at once. And then uh, if people remember, it stayed really cold um, below freezing and that made it more difficult um, for crews to pick up the snow, you know, picture uh you know the way the city is designed normally you see a a plow going down the street pushes the snow kind of onto the boulevards onto you know that that grassy part between the sidewalk and the road but there's just so much snow that uh you couldn't just uh plow it and let it build up on the boulevards and so they they start that uh process of actually having to remove the snow like drive it like outside Mm -hmm. of those areas that takes longer um, but there was a lot of things that went wrong, and I'm not sure we got a full explanation of why it took that long. And I think there is still that level of frustration. I think it's warranted. And so there's still some 
some details I would like to see in this in this plan when another storm like this happens. And we know it will happen eventually, how the city would do things differently. Yeah, it, it exacerbates, doesn't it? There's already, right, driver cyclist tension, driver pedestrian tension. And when 55 centimeters of snow get dumped on you, the drivers get happy when you plow the roads. And then next thing you know, the walkers and any, even if you've got a fat bike trying to get down sidewalks, it was borderline impossible for a couple weeks. So, uh it's it's either get the snow out of the city uh, or or someone someone loses either the walkers the cyclists or the drivers somebody's going to be losing. Totally, and we still have a situation in Toronto where there are a lot of parts of the city that don't get mechanical sidewalk clearing. Mm-hmm. Um, there are a lot of places in the suburbs where those areas are wider and they do get like those sidewalk plows. But for example, like I live in the old city of Toronto and you are relying on your neighbors to uh, shovel like their part of the sidewalk. It's kind of this like piecemeal thing. And like, I'm lucky that I happen to live on a residential street where I was able to get down to the main road pretty easily. But I know there's a lot of people who either like don't have the physical ability to shovel that much snow, right? You've got a lot of seniors still living in their homes and they maybe don't have someone that they've paid or have volunteered to do that. And so there's a lot of issues in this much snow mm. falls and there's a lot of blame placed on the city. And I'm not sure we've totally resolved the situation. Again, this report is still uh, coming forward about how they would deal with a storm like this in the future. And I do think uh, uh, taking a look at that and being critical of it, right? Like it's, it's important that we hold um, like leaders and, and city staff to account because, uh, you know, one counselor said to me, this is kind of a basic public service, right? Plowing the streets, yes. making sure that I can walk, drive, cycle where I need to go. Yeah, it's not a high bar. It's a it's a minimum for what for what people t- pay taxes for. Is can I get yeah. out of my house uh, and, and not be absolutely burdened by, uh, you know, by weather conditions? Exactly that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, in your paper as well, I got about a minute here, but it, it, it's significant, isn't it? That, that I think it's kind of shocking to people um, that Toronto is going to make its own deal uh, with our indigenous populations and going to make uh, better efforts to reconcile with indigenous communities. The number that jumped out at me, and I, I would have guessed it was a little under this, but by some estimates, Toronto has an urban indigenous population of between 70 and 100,000 First Nation, Métis and Inuit people. So um, the city, this can only be good in, uh, in, in the long term. And the city from yesterday and what John Tory said, the mayor, the city wants to move pretty quickly. This is all going to spread out over the span of about 10 years. Yeah, so the city has taken steps in the past, and some of those steps, uh, I, you know, you could argue are missteps or they are kind of ceremonial steps. Um, there are some some really good efforts that have been made. I think, um, you know, we there is actually an Indigenous Affairs office and committee at the city that looks specifically at these things and how uh, what the city does impacts this population of people. And it's important mm-hmm. because, you know, it's been... Um, probably brought to a lot of people's attention if they weren't aware before, just how um, how much wrongdoing has been done um, to, to uh, Indigenous people, whether it be residential schools or um, other uh, colonial acts, and just all of the systemic racism that exists in our country and, and does exist in the city. And there is such a large population of um, many different Indigenous peoples in the city. And it's important to understand that, uh, and I'm sure your listeners uh, know this, but there's all, there's all different types of, of folks that come here from, from different parts of the country, and those represent different Indigenous nations. And they're not all one, you know, 
amalgus people. Yeah. And they have a different interest and different needs. Um, you know, it, it's a big report. It's, it's, it's a lot of work. You know, we're talking about decades of systemic racism, but there are some really specific actions in here. And that's always what I look for in a city hall report like this. Is there actionable uh, uh, items that, you know, can be tracked and, and measured, not just broad states. Yeah. Yeah. And the affordable housing is a massive step. That's doing something way, way more than saying something. And you should say things, but, but the, the practicality, I like that you lay that out. The affordable housing is going to be fascinating to watch. I got to leave it there. I loved having you on. Thanks for your insight. Thanks so much for having me. Jennifer Pagliaro from the Toronto star on a couple really important city issues. I'm a kid of the 80s, so I think our prom was in, uh, our 12th grade prom was in 89, and then I skipped, I finished OAC year in January, so I was just running around with older friends, so I I only did the one prom, Um, but there's a lot of people my age that went in 12th grade and went in 13th grade. Um, Some of the cute girls got to go in 11th grade as well, like that's just just how it works. Three different dresses probably, Uh, but proms are coming back. By the way, I had a girlfriend once, uh, this song would come on on the radio and she'd be like, turn that off, turn that off right now. And I'm like, I don't know what happened. Yeah, sure. Okay. It's only our second date, but I won't ask. Anyway, um, proms are back and grads are back. And, um, you know, I watch my eighth grader. uh, I'm super excited for him to at least experience this. I've got a 10th grader who's done very little, no parties, no dances, no big events. He's hung out with his friends and sleepovers, movies, but everybody remembers theirs. Everybody remembered that evening and the buildup to it. I remember renting a tuxedo and I... I loved it. I, I loved every second of how how grown up it made you feel. And um, whether there was a time, maybe spring of 2020, when we should have prevented this and, and been careful and cautious. And maybe in 21, we should not have. I would put that out there. And I know this year we certainly should not. So here we are. And uh, I wanted to bring on, there's been a lot of demand uh, for dresses and for uh, suits and whatnot, and and for kids to be kids and teenagers to be teenagers. It's a rite of passage. It's a finite time. You don't get to do this again. Susan Bellow is co-owner of Bellow Fashion Boutique, and she joins me now on Toronto Today. Um, thank you for I, you know it, it. Thank you for making the time. And first of all, um, small business owner, and and you've survived this. You you must be just. I know it's tough, uh, but I, I'm sure you exhale at the excitement of hopefully what the next three months brings. Definitely. Uh, You know, I've had a surge of young ladies running through our shop. Uh, It's incredible, actually. It's very exciting. Um, It's always rewarding uh, to see the smile on their face when they find the right dress. And, uh, you know, they leave. Uh, And they're very powerful women today. I'm happy to see that. (laughs) I was going to say, you you get to see the emotion really firsthand and and uh, and sort of the trepidation and nervousness. They, you know, we all we all pay attention to those kind of details in in those years. We get a little older, maybe we get married, we have kids, and maybe the details don't matter as much. But to us, but we know that they do for for teenage girls and boys. That like these moments are everything. Definitely, um, it's been you know a very very hard two years. The last two years with COVID, um, it's limited uh, you know girls um, from having their proms. I've seen girls, you know, we've had in our shop, I would say, uh, 40 to 50 girls at a time at one point to where they had to wear masks come in and it just wasn't the same anymore. But now, you know what? Prom is back on. Girls are excited. 
Um, I had a girl just the other day from British Columbia, Alberta. They're coming from everywhere, and mm. it's very exciting. Um, yeah, so Susan, you've got girls graduating 12th grade. The pandemic hits them with about three or four months left in 10th grade, right, when we do the math? Yes. Like, that's that's um, un, un, unthinkable. We've all been through something rather unthinkable. But at that age, I think we all look back at our teen years. You probably do. I do. Our listeners do. And we think, I, I, I can imagine doing anything for a month. You tell me what I need to do. I'll do it. We've had now 25, 26 of these months. I know. It's been very hard. The pandemic's made it very difficult uh, at this point. I have to say, though, I'm so happy to see the girls back out there looking for that dress. Um, the excitement in them is unreal. Uh, you know, some girls are coming in um, not wearing the masks anymore. Some girls are still. Uh, it's it's just been, um, how can I say, um, I'm excited for them. I'm happy for them to get out of this pandemic, to be very honest with you, and go on with their lives. And, you know, and that one happy day that they get to wear that dress and their prom that they, you know, been waiting for. Because I've also seen the girls that didn't have the proms and they had to do it in their backyard alone, mm. you know, with four or whatever, you know, people, because they weren't allowed to have a certain amount of people. Um, but I'll tell you, they're back out there and they're definitely looking for that dress uh, and the excitement and, you know, everything is happening so fast. Yeah. And they're excited. <laughs> and so I can hear it in your voice and, and it's making me smile thinking about it. And I'm I'm thrilled. Um, like I said, I've only got I got a 10th grader and an eighth grader. And I hope even the, the grade eight grad is uh, is going to be something to uh, remember. We have a real dedicated principal at, at my kid's school. And, and I know he's going to make this work. By the way, Susan Bellows, is our guest owner of Bellow Fashions Boutique. I'd say as well, a lot of these girls probably um, don't like the same boy they liked 26 months ago. We're pretty imperfect creatures. It's hard to like the same boy in high school 26 months in a row. That was my experience anyway. <laughs> Tell me about the practicality. You don't have to comment on that. Tell me about the practicality of the demand. Obviously, we're, you know, we use this catchphrase all the time, the supply chain. Are you able to get enough dresses in? Are you able to get dresses that are in demand? Are, are, are you crossing your fingers sometimes when you see the truck pull up, knowing that everything that, that comes in is what you want and what you need? Well, at this point, you know what? Um, we still have beautiful dresses. Uh, and I, you know, I tell young ladies at this point at, at time because, you know, everyone's in the same situation right now. So either you're, you know, taking it off the shelf when you can, like, basically you're buying it off the rack and you're taking it home with you. That's the best thing at this point right now because of the demand supply. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, it's, it's some places have more supply and some places don't, right? So from what I've seen from a lot of young ladies that are running around with their moms is that they're basically buying off the shelf. It's the best thing to do at this point. I'm going to ask you this because you'll have a great answer and I wouldn't know where to start. I got opinions, but I'm blanking on this one. Has fashion changed at all over the course of the pandemic? Because my initial thought is, how could it? Like it, it, it doesn't, you know, a tux would not be the same that I wore in 1990 to the prom. Five years later, there's a little bit different. Fa I can look in pictures of myself and I'm like, I can't believe I was wearing that five years prior to that. Has fashion for girls or dresses even changed or did because we hit pause on everything else? What was cool in 2019 is probably still cool. It is. 
actually, you know what? I'm seeing young girls that um, the dresses, like it, it, it's interesting. The fashion hasn't really changed that much. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, from a, a slit at the front to something else. Uh, honestly, it's basically, it's changed and not changed. It makes sense. Like it's, it's mm-hmm. unreal. It's what you like at the end of the day. That's what I find. Um, you know, it depends on what the young girl is looking for. There are some young girls that are looking for something very conservative. There are other young girls looking for a different look. And you know what? They make it work. <laughs> and I, honestly, I think, you know what? You wear what you love at the end of the day. And I always tell young ladies, wear what makes you feel good. And if you wear something that makes you feel good, you're going to radiate. <laughs> I'm sure you're just you're getting the, the ones that come in again. The, the, the mask thing from Monday on is is about choice. And I'm sure you're just thrilled to see smiles because if someone is coming in and they've got that option to come in with a mask on, buy the dress and whatnot. My kid, I, I went and had my kid fitted for a suit in the spring of 2020 for an outdoor thing. And he had to wear the mask the entire time. So I can't tell. Like, you're like, do you like this? And all I can see is his eyes. But when you see someone's nose and mouth, you know whether they like something or not. You're getting to do that. And and like you said, the joy and how, just how they radiate. That must be really, really exciting. One of the most exciting things you've done as a business owner. It is. And our service is unbelievable because you know what? We want them to walk out really happy, loving their gown, because we know when they wear that gown that day, Mm. they're going to be very happy, you know, and that's the bottom line. Uh, The bottom line is wearing something that you love. Well, um, I've been wearing sweatpants a lot in the last 700 days, so I'm not sure I I'm not sure I love it as much as I thought I did 700 days ago. I'm I'm looking to wear Nice things again. I want to put your website out there for the people, bellofashionboutique.com. We've been chatting with Susan Bello. I don't have a girl, but if I did, she'd be there later today. Or if, or if either of my sons had girlfriends, like get it together, guys. It's time to get back out there. But but they, I would send them right to Bello Fashions Boutique today. I hope you do great business. I'd, I'd love to check in later in the spring and see how it's going. Thanks for making the time for us. No worries. Take care. Hey, it's Greg Brady. Thanks so much for listening to Toronto Today. We'll be back with a live show tomorrow between 5.30 and 9 a.m. to wrap up your week on Friday morning. Thanks again. You can get us on the Radio Player Canada app or find us at 640toronto.com.